Use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. This is My Name Is My Name, an anomalous humanities podcast with APS. On today's episode, I sit down with Michael O'Rourke, an independent scholar out of Dublin who also teaches part-time at independent colleges in Dublin, as well as working for the Irish Post Service. you all survive the holidays as you can tell since i'm here i managed to survive mine though i have to say it was not easy and i came out of it feeling a little bit depressed some of it was good though i got to spend time with my new little sister my mother has adopted a little girl and um she's a little bit obsessed with princesses and i tried to uh indoctrinate her, um, showed her my drum pad app, hoping to distract her from some of the princess games she plays, which isn't to say that she shouldn't play with dress-up games, I just wanted to show her that there were some other things she could do while dressing up. Maybe in the spirit of the conversation today, I'm hoping my little sister can be a queer princess and not just a normal princess, one that wears pink, but that also makes sick beats. I'm not sure my once-a-year indoctrination is going to work, though, but it's something that I think my guest today would appreciate. Uh, Michael O'Rourke, who I mentioned at the top of the show, is an independent scholar in in Dublin, and who recently authored a chapbook entitled Queer in Cis for Jose Esteban Munoz, a kind of work of mourning for the uh, recently deceased queer theorist. And this is published with Punctum Books, so you can download an open access copy as well as order a relatively cheap print version. Now, Michael is a friend of mine, and this uh, concludes the interviews I did in Dublin while I was over there for the Larwell in Translation series of talks that he organized. Before turning it over to the conversation, I want to say a little bit about Michael's work or an aspect of it that he brings up in his talk. Uh, that has been useful for me in thinking through uh, very recent events. I've been thinking a lot over the past few years about the tangled phenomena of secularism, colonialism, and racism. Obviously, I am not the only one, and my concern with these issues doesn't come out of a vacuum. They are a major part of our society and political situation today. A recent blog post I did for Anun for Sikh was an attempt to provide the outline of an analysis of European anxiety regarding Islam and Muslims. 
the next day saw the murder of 12 employees of the French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo. The current assumption, probably true, is that these murders were Muslims and that they may have been part of some so-called radical group, ISIS, or perhaps Al-Qaeda of Yemen. In a certain sense, it doesn't really matter. For most, these descriptions mean nothing. They were Muslims, and these murders were further proof of the barbarism of religion, of this religion. Now, I do not go in on this narrative. The assumptions in my analysis of religion and politics or culture do not work to make sense of the situation. In fact, oftentimes these assumptions actually act as a cover to avoid thinking through the reality of the situation, of looking at the conditions that cause the situation. This isn't some misty-eyed, naive defense of religion or of Muslims as a religion of peace only, and I would not go so far as to say these aren't quote-unquote real Muslims, because real Muslims, the real anybody's, are capable of great violence as well as supernatural kindness and grace. And while I would like there to be less stupidity around the discourse of religion, I don't think the situation is explained by calling for nuance either. Or at the very least, nuance is not sufficient to solve the problem or even analyze it. Now in the conversation with Michael, he has a lot of things to say about the importance of trying to bring together dialogues of discourses and he's ultimately a very syncretic thinker. But one framework that he brings up in our discussion was particularly useful to me and continues to be so in the light of the attack carried out just yesterday. Michael speaks about shame, shame flooded spaces, and the way inhabiting these spaces may be productive, productive of new relationships, new ways of thinking, uh, productive of perhaps liberation itself, and productive of analyses that are more fearless uh, than when we run away from shame or try to discharge shame as quickly as possible. We want to run away from shame while enjoying the shaming of others. This is what I see in the immediate demand to affirm free speech against barbarians to affirm a certain jingoistic notion of the West. Let me be clear, and I have to insist on this because of how much stupidity is out there in these discussions, but to be clear, these were murders, and they were rooted in an ideology that I do not support. But neither am I invested in the ideology attacked. Taking this one example, consider the nasty and mean-spirited nature of Charlie Hebdo, the racist, royalist family I lived with in France used to love this magazine and so it was always in the toilet. Much of it is very racist and you can find examples of this online now, and much of it was punching down. And not just punching down at Muslims, but working class and rural whites, Jews, women, and so on. And there's something shameful about that. It's a reflection of a shameful culture that in America probably has an analog with Family Guy. But these murders, these are also shameful 
and reflective of something shameful in our culture. In, and I think we have to insist on this, our culture. And while I think it's completely natural and in some sense laudable that it sparks spontaneous protests, though I always wonder how spontaneous protests are when they have beautifully crafted signs already, but it sparks these protests, I, I want to say that that's natural and normal. But there's something shameful in that too. Some of you, like me, come from military families in the US and in other places that are engaged in what are colonial wars. And perhaps you've heard from those members of your family or friends about certain shameful acts. And we know that the media and Twitter and social media doesn't report the often horrific acts that happen in those, those places those scenes of carnage and destruction. I've even heard someone tell me that sometimes it's easier to just take out the whole village instead of find the person that you're supposed to. And no one is saying, I am an Afghani child. And so I think we have to sit with our shame. Let us sit with our shame. The shame that this is our world between terroristic violence of nihilistic states and the smaller nihilistic response to that between mean-spirited contrarians and hateful dogmatists lashing out but also shame in pretending that it is brave to stand up to minority groups while hegemonic and far-reaching forms of violence happen in the presence of silence to begin in the shame-flooded space rather than trying to begin in purity. This seems to me the right place to begin thinking about the contemporary situation where we find secularism, colonialism, and racism entangled, as well as in thinking uh, questions of queer phobia, transphobia, and misogyny. And maybe if I'm being a bit too quick to say that this is where we should start, it's at least another thing to go into our toolbox. Because there's something common about shame, it marks a commonality that exceeds those communities that are built upon exclusion. Now, I don't think it would be fair to put all this on Michael if you disagree with me, uh, and I don't think he shares the same sympathies I do for post-colonial theories, and we do have different sort of affective moods to our work. He's more affirmationist, while I carry a certain pessimism more and more. But I think, in some sense, in this notion of shame, we share a certain intellectual commitment to grace and, of course, a friendship. This notion of a guilt-flooded space helps me to think through the current situation as meaningful locally in the attack of yesterday. And I know it's not a popular thing to say, especially after these moments, but I think it's especially in the moments of this kind of idiotic suicidal violence that we have to, again, repeat these things. But uh, enough of my thoughts on this matter, though you can, of course, go check out Anun for Sick at itself.wordpress.com if you want to read my remarks from earlier this week and where there's been a long discussion about Foucault and neoliberalism over the past uh, couple days. But 
Now let's turn to our discussion with Michael. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things from the sort of colonialism in queer theory, the American colonialism in queer theory, to uh, why he, as someone who's been working on queer theory for something like 20 years now, became interested in speculative realism and what it's like to be outside of the institutions of academia, to be a, as he says, peri-academic rather than a para-academic. And I think there is really something that we should celebrate in the ability of people outside the academy to do this work, even when they are sometimes attacked by people with much more institutional power. So, my conversation with Michael. I usually give my affiliation as independent colleges okay. in Dublin, which and is what I teach, teach there. Yeah, one yeah. course. Okay. Um, and you're, you're also a postman. So I am indeed a yeah. postman. Le facteur de la vérité. Yeah. <laughs> the postman of truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so what do you teach though at independent colleges? I teach um, an introduction to contemporary philosophy, mostly continental um, mostly recent philosophy and it's to students of psychoanalytic psychotherapy okay so mostly in the freudian and lacanian traditions right. so what i teach is um ways in which to link contemporary philosophers like derrida gambin nancy for example um to uh Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalytic ideas and concepts. Mm. Um, well, we're, usually the course is kind of thematically based, so we talk about you know love, violence, um, vulnerability, justice, mm. ethics. So uh, kind of topical. It's intended to be responsive to contemporary events as well. So, um, for instance, taught Russell Brand. Oh, really? this year yeah oh. when he did the interview with, oh, with um, yeah, Paxman yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was a way to talk about ethics but using Badu's event uh, okay. for example yeah. to, uh, how did that go over? it went really well actually yeah I think when you use sort of cultural examples um, the students are much more amenable to the more difficult um, theoretical concepts are the more difficult philosophical ideas like for example i often bring in like pop music mm -hmm. or movies or tv shows um and towards the end of the year when they had to do their presentation the student said to me can we talk about you know popular culture in our presentations and i said look you know i'm really tired of the sort of uh totemic figures of psychoanalysis you know we talk about lacanian psychoanalysis or Freudian psychoanalysis why not Spearsian or Knowlesian <laughs> or Rihannian or you know uh, yeah. so we did a whole week on Lady Gaga this year for example okay. um, we also talked about Miley Cyrus yeah you did a, a kind of uh, event on Miley Cyrus right I did do a week long um, series of curations on this media commons project called in media res um, so it's a five day project where each day someone posts a short video 
which can be already available video so um, a Miley Cyrus track or uh-huh. an interview with her or they can make their own video which can be images gifs uh, whatever uh, and then they write a 400 word note and then there's discussion hmm. um, so the theme was Miley Cyrus super queer okay uh, well what's your fascination with Miley um, the initial fascination with Miley is well I, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by pop starlets so um, you know I've written about Gaga I've written about Rihanna mm-hmm. uh, so Miley is just the next in a long list of uh, <laughs> pop stars that I'm fascinated by but uh, in this case it was kind of a coincidence when the whole twerking mm-hmm. phenomenon um, started not with Miley of course because yeah. it's, 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 it's a borrowing uh, on her part but when it started I was sort of like you know this is kind of interesting because one of the etymological uh, roots of queer mm. is this Indo-European word twerk. Oh. Uh, so like it's just it's just felicitous mm-hmm. that there's some sort of connection between uh, queering and twerking. Um, so then I was I started watching more of her videos, um, which are really um, in the same spirit as Gaga. Um, Cyrus is a sort of performance artist. Mm-hmm. So her, her, her videos are, you know, really quite experimental and artistic. But I was quite struck by the, the sort of queer aesthetic of the videos, you know, um, and indeed of her, her appearance. You know, it's quite a, I guess it's a kind of um, edgy, kind of dikey mm-hmm. aesthetic that she plays with. But it's also a sort of refusal um, to to submit to sort of gendered norms or, or sexual norms. Uh, so when I called her super queer, it was almost to register the fact that there's a sort of hyper queerness about her, uh, which is even more anarchic, I think, than a figure like Gaga, uh, or even a figure like Madonna. Um, I mean, I gave this talk in Sweden recently, and uh, I gave sort of three examples from popular culture of um, artists who are queer or not it was Gaga, Beyonce and Cyrus and I said it in a way which was hyperbolic but also I would stand stand by it that she's the most important artist of the last 20 years yeah. I think she's way more important than, than, than Madonna, it remains to be seen um, whether she'll she'll make good on, on this uh, this rather outlandish <laughs> claim of mine but uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll see so um uh, so you, you do a lot of work in queer theory. Um, you're kind of like me. You're a bit uh, intellectually promiscuous. Um, but uh, before we talk about some of your other um, uh, you know, uh, work outside of queer theory, mm-hmm. what, what do you think it is about queer theory that allows for this, this mixing of um, you know, what might be called lowbrow culture with high theory? Um, yes. I think um, right from its very roots because it, I mean queer theory started on the streets okay it was like uh, associated with AIDS activism so you had groups like ACT UP mm-hmm. and Queer Nation um, so very sort of intellectual movements but activist movements nonetheless so you had people you know doing kiss-ins and die-ins on the street but also clutching copies of Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality uh, so that's really where it began so I think there's always been a sort of connection um, 
in queer theory with uh, that which is doesn't belong in the academy or that which is sort of extra institutional so uh, a sort of appeal to uh, pop culture you know to music to art um, to TV uh, and various other uh, cultural forms um, I mean a book like Lee Edelman's homographesis mm-hmm. which was essentially written almost prior to the efflorescence of queer theory um, as a term or as a discourse um, I mean it's called essays in in gay you know literary and cultural theory mm. um, but the, in the preface that he talks about this sort of mixity between you know sort of jargon filled high highbrow theory you know capital mm-hmm. T theory capital F French theory mm-hmm. uh, and then on the other hand this sort of lowbrow um, not necessarily trivial but also that which could be construed as not serious um, which is part of the appeal for me of writing about figures like Miley is that um, I take it quite seriously but is easily dismissed by uh, the sort of police or the gatekeepers of academic queer theory mm. which would probably think you know what is this guy doing um, is he for real um, why is he talking about someone like Miley Cyrus um, but it, it, in a way queer theory has to connect you know I gave a talk um, for Victor Taylor at the York College of Pennsylvania recently and, uh, we, we Skyped a couple of days before t- to talk about what, what he wanted from me and he said like I just want you to, to address the question of what does queer theory connect to in the world because my students can't see it you know they're reading Judith Butler um, and they're reading sort of you know post-structuralist theory and wondering well what does this do you know uh, what can we do with queer theory so, like, you know um, you can you can use it to talk about a film or you can use it to talk about a pop music video uh, Stephen Shaviro would be a wonderful example of this actually mm. whose work has you know consistently you know been able to mediate between very high theory and you know Grace Jones videos or the films of Aja Argento yeah uh, um, he, he's always appealed to these sort of easy, easily dismissible figures which is one of the things I like about his his work you know um sort of trivial genres yeah. or they're not trivial in, in inverted commas trivial like science fiction for yeah, example yeah. or horror movies um or movies which are which are um not exactly box office hits um i mean that's that's uh, one of the wonderful things about with uh, uh steven chaviro i think uh, also the fact i mean i'm talking about him in the same breath as queer theory but uh, he's not readily identified with queer theory but on the other hand there's a there's always been an attunement to gender and sexuality in in Shapiro's work well so that that has, uh that leads us to an interesting question i think on um who gets to count as a queer theorist yes uh, so i know in um uh you probably wouldn't be right to say the queer community because there's probably many queer communities um, but in the queer communities and, and probably in the, the academic gatekeeper one that you were talking about yes um, there's there's probably a lot of debate about this right mm, like who belongs um, part of it uh, is 
to my mind, a bit of confusion mm. about what queer means or what queer is or what queer does. Um, and that confusion is that you have to be gay or lesbian or trans in order to be considered uh, a legitimate practitioner um, of um, queer theory as if queer and lesbian, gay and transgender were actually synonymous, which they're not. Right. Queer is rather a uh, sort of uh, an unfixed referent, which could, could certainly include all of those things, but also includes uh, a lot more besides. I mean, anyone can be queer, but not everyone can be lesbian or not everyone can be gay. Um, I mean, queer for me is anti-identitarian. Okay, mm. so one does not belong to a community or if one does, it would be a community without community, uh, in a sense. But unfortunately, um, there is a certain policing of what counts, even though someone like Leo Bersani, a long, long time ago in a book called Homonus, said homonus is something which is open to everyone. Mm. Okay, so straight people could quite consider, quite uh, uh, easily be considered to be queer or to you know, take up uh, the term queer for themselves. Um, but on the other hand, um, you have this sort of... Uh, I've, I've written about it before in a lot of places. It's, it's, it's not so much that there's a queer theory community, because I said there's no, no such thing as a queer theory community, but there's a sort of queer theory hegemony mm. or orthodoxy, which is what I describe as kind of paraphrasing Derrida when he says deconstruction in and as America. I say like, well, queer theory in and as America. So there's, there's an, if one uses the analogy of the gate, there's a sort of gated community, which is like, you have all these American queer theorists who, who are not concerned with or interested in, uh, even in the vaguest sense, anything which happens outside of the United States. Okay, so they're not reading work which comes from the so-called peripheries of queer theory so they're not reading really important stuff from France uh, Marie-Hélène Boursier's work for example they're not reading or Didier Ribon uh, they're not reading stuff from from Spain Beatrice Preciado for example uh, stuff from Italy from Poland even from the UK mm. or from Ireland or God forbid Australia even you know <laughs> Russia um and uh, although it's never really taken off in uh, in Asia, um, I mean Eve Sedgwick's last lectures, which are collected in the Weather and Proust book, were uh, an attempt to to translate mm, her queer theory into um, sort of Chinese and, and Japanese contexts. Uh, so I don't know whether it's had much of a take up in in China or Japan, but I mean people like Frederick Jameson. And Hillis Miller are huge in Japan, mm -hmm. so I see no reason why someone like Judah Butler or Eve Sedgwick couldn't be huge in Japan too. But uh, again, we're I guess we're talking about American thinkers there that are being exported yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. So you've got this whole sort of one-way traffic. So queer theory is something which is exported rather than some something which is trans in transit or yeah. transported. Uh, it's not traveling in two ways, like you know, because the American. Yeah, there's no dialogue because the Americans don't don't read. You know what happens outside. Um, I was at a 
conference a long time ago in, in London called Queer Matters. And it was a huge, huge conference. Everyone who was, everyone in queer studies was there. Um, and someone commented at uh, one of the concluding plenaries or round tables that the lingua franca of queer studies was English. I was like, really? Because we've got a lot of people at this conference who don't speak English as their first language mm. and who are working in and on queer theory. Um, and there was this argument about like, oh, it costs too much to translate this stuff, you know. Um, Do you see this kind of critique you have as, as connecting up with some of the critiques of homo-nationalism that's uh, yes. been taken up a lot? Yeah. One way I would, I would, I would, I would certainly see a link between um, deconstruction or queer theory in and as America and homo-nationalism and homo-normativity. And to put it in uh, the language of your philosopher, Francois Laruel, mm. uh, is this, there's a sort of principle of sufficient sexuality mm. or a principle of sufficient gender which is this sort of auto-referentiality mm-hmm. of queer studies in and as America, which, of course, Laruel's work is, in a, for me, an important challenge and, and corrective yeah. too. Uh, but yeah, those, those discourses of, of, of homonormativity um, are precisely about a kind of gatekeeping yeah. as well um, of, of who, who, who gets to count or what gets to count. I mean, you have these arguments that queer of colour critique is the most important thing that's happening in queer studies right now. And I don't disagree with that, but all of the people being held up as doing that, all that most important work are actually queers of colour who are based in America mm. or um, are actually Americanists working in Americanist departments. So, so that's another dimension to it, um, which I see um, as being important which is that there's a sort of disciplinary, um, I guess it's a provincial, provinciality or uh, narrowness, you know, that the most Im- important in inverted commas queer theorists work in certain fields. Uh, so it's not just that people from certain areas are excluded from what counts as being worthy of being read or being cited, whatever, but it's also people in certain disciplines uh, so you, so you haven't seen much of a take-up of queer theory in certain fields. Uh, anthropology would be one example, or, mm. or archaeology. Um, simply because of uh, this kind of... Um, I, I, I'm using the word policing a lot, I mean, right. but I'm using it in, sort of in, the, in the sort of Ranciarian sense mm-hmm. as well. Um, sort, of, sort of police orders. Um, well, there was some interesting uh, uh, stuff around the, the Pride Day uh, celebrations, uh, which was about a week ago now, I think. Yes, right? yes. Um, uh, where some people were trying to get the police involved as like a positive thing, and then a lot of uh, a lot of people in the queer community were like, "Want the police here?" Like, yes. And then so they were making memes about the police have always been in- involved with Pride Day, and it was like pictures of police beating yes. and like Stonewall. And, uh-huh. um, so I, I don't know, I think the police uh, metaphor uh, probably has deep roots both in the, the practice of it and in the, the, Certainly. the theoretical use that you're, you're making. Yeah, just uh, as a kind of sidebar to, to pride, I mean, I, I've never been a supporter of 
of pride parades or um, the whole sort of discourse of pride um, someone asked me about this recently and I said like, I think that one, one, uh, one has more of a, a theoretical obligation to revalue shame um, um, and one of the things that we all share is a sort of collective uh, fragility or vulnerability which allows us to um, to share uh, our shame in ways which can lead to new forms of collectivity or new relational modes or uh, new ways of belonging or new ways of being with. Um, so pride for me is, uh, it's again a part of this sort of homo-nationalizing mm. discourse. I mean, I, I see celebrating pride as uh, far too bound up with sort of corporatization and um, the Burger King pride burger. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't. But yeah. you, you get my you get my point. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, or, uh, I mean, to be sort of devil's advocate, I mean, like you know, I mean, uh, why is pride just on one day of the year, mm. uh, or why not have heterosexual pride parades? Uh, I, I think it's, it's much more interesting to revel in sort of scenes of what Cedric would call sort of sh shame floodingness, you know, as ways of, you know, coming coming together in, in ways where your identity is fractured in some way. Uh, but yet, uh, one can be reconstituted in terms of uh, the fact that other people are also shamed mm. okay um like no one ever says uh, and Cedric talks about this in tendencies she says like oh queerness must always attach to the first person this must be its center of gravity and I think that's a huge blunder I've always felt that because you know no one ever says like oh I am I am shamed you know um uh, because shaming always comes from the outside mm. one is judged or one is shamed or one is um it's like what Derrida says about the rogue you know mm. no one ever says I am a rogue there's a, there's a sort of juridico moral order which designates one as a rogue and then of course Derrida says oh yeah well great why not take up this sh shameful lascivious lewd debauched position and do something politically interesting with it um I would argue the same thing for shame uh, why can't we why can't we just say like Okay, so this person wants to shame me. I said, like, yeah, I, 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 uh, I absolutely revel in that. Yeah, it's it's something about the sort of the comfortable position I think of of queerness now, not just in the academy, but also what you're talking about this sort of you know pride parades and so on and the Burger King, uh, pride burger. Um, it's 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 part of for me a whole discourse of domestication okay. which is why I say like, it started on the streets this is where it belongs it ought to be improper it ought to be rude it ought to be fucking stuff up yeah. you know pride parades don't fuck anything up really no, no, no. you know yeah. um, hmm. so I think you know we need more impropriety you know we need more bold gestures we need more anarchic gestures we need well, 
Lauren Blant and Michael Warner have this wonderful line about um, queer theory as they're prancing and squatting on the academic stage, but they say like exuding some rut, you know. So it's like a, it's like an animal exuding rut in the street. Uh, that has always appealed to me as what we should be doing, or uh, how we should feel about the work that we do. I mean, if it becomes something which is Bill Redding's actually worried about this in the university in ruins. He said, "Like, my worry is that queer wouldn't be this sort of risky discourse anymore if it if it became something which was just spread across the curricula." Mm-hmm. And he was right because that's been borne out. You know, there are programs in queer studies pretty much everywhere now. You know, the conferences continue, the books come out, the book series, some of which I edit, yeah. they happen. Um, you know. Um, so his worry that it would become institutionalized or normalized uh, or corporatized even you know because the university is a is a corporation um seems to me something we ought to be fighting against mm. you know there's a tension though there between uh wanting to make sure that the material uh conditions for doing the theory yes. are there so i'm thinking of book theories i'm thinking of uh, you know, conferences are good for bringing people together mm-hmm. um, and uh, that domestication. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you kind of try to resist that? It's a good question. I was just funnily enough, I, I was recalling recently a long, long time ago, just after Derrida died, I, uh, I gave this paper at a, a sort of memorial conference for Derrida, and uh, a lady came up to me afterwards, and she said, "Like, you said something about like." Uh, the domestication of Derrida uh, and I said like yes and she's like you made it sound like a bad word domesticate and I said like yeah and she said well this is the whole sort of baggage you know that domestication has which if you use it as a negative can have certain gendered implications and I see that now it's yeah. like you know um, as if you know domestic work or some yeah. somehow something to be denigrated yeah. or, or to be devalued um so I'm, I'm i'm sort of cautious about the way that i say that now um which is that you know a certain refusal of domestication how do i do it it's kind of easy for me to do it mm-hmm. because i don't work in a university <laughs> so i can make these sort of grandiose claims about like oh yeah we we need to be uh, rebellious we need to be revolting in every sense of the word uh, we need to be fucking shit up we need to uh, we need to destroy the edifice of queer theory and its position in the university for its own good um, but that's easy for someone who is extra institutional or institutional like me to say um, because I don't have to deal with the the actual material conditions of what it means to be a professor who teaches queer theory or to be a student who's taking a class in queer theory. But you do edit a book series. I edit two book series, uh, both of which are queer study series, Um, which, you know, some people say to me that gives me a lot of power. I don't think it's institutional power. Uh, I I actually don't... One of the things I don't recognise about this, this misunderstanding of my work people say like oh you have all these networks and you have all this power and you can decide whose book you want to publish or not it isn't necessarily true actually as a, as a series editor 
you get proposals in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the publisher doesn't even send them on to you. They make a decision before you've even seen it, which wow. is embarrassing later on when someone yeah. goes, why did you re- reject my book? So, well, I never saw the proposal. Right. Um, but with my book series, um, it's more a case of me actually going out there and soliciting work where I'll see a conference announcement. I said, like, that seems to me to be a very important move that this conference is making in queer studies. I'd like to have that collection. I'd like to have those proceedings. Or I write to someone and say, like, you know, queer theory hasn't made much of a impact or inroads in your field. Do you want to write a book for me? And so it's, it's less about having some sort of power for me. It's more about trying to create a space for innovatively theoretical work to happen uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be academics mm-hmm. who will publish that work the, 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 the new series which um, I'm going to be doing is an open access um, queer studies series called Queer as Thesis um, Do you have a publisher for that? It's Punctum Books oh, cool. uh, so it's going to be launched pretty soon there's four books signed um, already and this is this is more gives me a lot more freedom because it's not an academic publisher um it, it's not not an academic publisher but it's yeah. it's open access so there's a whole different set of stakes involved yeah. it's not trying to make money uh it's trying to um uh create um spaces where people can either download books or have ready uh, and easy access to them, but also um, purchase them if they're a bibliophile like me who likes to, yeah. who fetishizes the actual. Um, so there's for for people who who can't be here in Michael's apartment, uh, there's, there's piles of books uh, uh, that are threatening to engulf him in, in his bedroom. <laughs> Towers of books. Yeah. Um, but the thing about this new queerest thesis series, I mean, it's in the title. Um, it's both in the Rancierian sense of sort of distribution, distribution of the sensible, um, but also is the sense of aesthetics. Uh, so trying to get work which is sort of um, not what I would publish in the queer intervention series, which would be poetry, art books, um, much different kinds of texts. Like the first book is going to be. Um, a, a collection of the Israeli artist Bracket Ettinger's notebooks mm. and it'll be a notebook size so we can play around with things like format and yeah. um, what it is that we actually include in the books you know um, it we could have made a decision to have essays by by Bracket Ettinger collected but we wanted to make an art book so that is what we're going to do um so and then there's going to be a, a, a book on poetry which will hopefully have uh, quite a lot of poetry in it because i think that's two of two of the most interesting recent books in queer studies have been um kind of rethinking queer theory as poetry or chiasmically uh poetry as queer theory and that's michael snedeker mm-hmm. um who's a wonderful theorist, but he, he's written a collection of po- several collections of poetry, but the most recent one is The, the Apartment of Tragic Appliances, which are beautiful, long, almost prose poems. Um, and then there's another collection called Crush, 
just by Will Stockton and uh, Dwayne Gilson. Um, and they're both open access books published with uh, Punctum. Uh, but uh, they sort of mix in, in not super explicit ways, uh, queer theory and poetry uh, in ways which I find very exciting. Um, so I can see that as being a potentially new critical mode, mm. which would be queer, queer as poetry or poetry as queer, um, which I think is worth trying to get more of that type of work out there. Of course. Yeah. But so, so the punctum thing brings us to a, a part of your work that um, has been really important. And uh, uh, I, I'm going to say a term, but I know you're going to correct me and I can't remember the term you prefer, so uh, I will take that correction. But you know, <laughs> uh, this kind of para-academic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, like you've said, you're outside mm-hmm. the academy in terms of a full-time position, mm-hmm. though you still kind of, um, uh, you know, you have the independent colleges mm-hmm. uh, course and and you still work with academics like myself who do exist within that realm uh, mm-hmm. quite entrenched mm-hmm. um, so how do you how do you see uh, uh, this sort of outsider role you have that's also still kind of a foot in mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, the I, I, I was using the term para-academic for a long time um, it seemed to me useful when it was, uh, it was first coined by Nicola Maschiandaro, who's a, a professor in, in Brooklyn, in New York, um, and he was using it to refer to, um, say, a discipline, if one wants to call it a discipline, like black metal theory. Uh, and it's a useful term to describe that, because black metal theory is, uh, has no place in the academy as such. There isn't a field called black metal theory in which right. you, you'll have uh, book series, for example, or uh, courses on syllabi I, I I hope that you you might in the future but um, and of course uh, black metal theory brings together musicians artists theorists who aren't in the academy theorists who are in the academy so para-academic was to try and mark that kind of inquiry um, but also thinkers like um, um, graduate students who are publishing a lot of open access work Ben Woodard would be an example um, or philosophers who are publishing work but aren't uh, in an institution like Reza Nagarastani would mm-hmm. be an example. So a lot of figures who are para-academic in the sense that um, they have maybe a, a tenuous foothold in the academy in the sense that they get invited to speak places and they publish in academic journals or they publish in academic series and so on. Um, but I've come to reject very recently the term para-academic because it's become what I would call a kind of comfy term which you have very securely tenured academics saying like oh yeah I do para-academic work like well no you don't because you may do work which is could be considered para in the sense that it's illegitimate mm-hmm. for want of a better word and uh, or a sort of perturbation to what is considered proper academic work so yeah you some people do do that uh, and they work with artists and they work with people like me who are extra institutional and that's okay if you're supporting people who do that kind of work or that kind of inquiry for nothing Mm. 
So it's a lot of it is unpaid labor. So I think that's important that the term, without belonging to anybody, it oughtn't to belong to anybody, but it might, it might be said that it more properly, in inverted commas, belongs in inverted commas, to people who do stuff sheer, for the sheer love of it. Because they might write a book, or they might write an article, or they might organize a seminar, but they're not going to get tenure, or they're not going to get promotion, or they're not going to get paid. So they're not going to get any sort of capital from it, whether that's intellectual uh, or economic. Uh, so the term I'm using and it's provisionally is peri-academic, which is as how I would describe myself. I mean, uh, I'm 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 peri-citical on the academy oh, so, yeah. in a sense that I, I crowd around it and I'm in the vicinity of it, and I do things with academics like like yourself, um, and I do work which is considered academic I mean some of the work I do get paid for I get paid to teach a course at independent mm -hmm. colleges um, I get paid every time I sign a book for my series um, occasionally uh, if I give a lecture I get paid mm -hmm. uh, so most of the time I turn down honoraria and ask the institution to spend it on books for graduate students sometimes I don't turn it down for instance I went to Sweden recently to give a lecture and, um, I used the honoraria to bring my mother with me mm -hmm. for for five days so she could have a holiday and hear me speak um so um well have you have you uh have you come across some of this writing recently um um sort of criticizing people who do it for the love um saying that this is sort of a uh chipping away at um i mean it's almost like a a kind of classic union argument like mm. um we all have to demand to get paid, or they're not going to pay any of us. Mm. Uh, how do you? How would you respond to something a criticism like that? In, in in two ways, I'm very sympathetic to the plight of academics in various places who are subjected to the increasing adjunctification. Uh, so there are people who are working, mainly graduate students or early career researchers, uh, or early career teachers. Who are doing work and not getting paid very well for it, or are living uh, a precarious existence in in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Uh, not having a secure footing in the academy, um, and having to move from job to job and city to city without any sort of hope that they will be made secure anywhere. Yeah. I'm very sympathetic to that, and I I think that they're. There are reasons why people like me, even though I'm outside, ought to help people like that. Mm. Um, then the other, on the other hand, um, I think it, it's slightly unfair to castigate someone who says, well, I write simply for the love of it. I don't want anything from it. Um, I don't think... It does seem like punching down. Yeah, I don't think there's that, that anybody who has chosen to stay outside but still do the same kinds of work but for nothing should be in any way denigrated for that or seen as like complicit with I mean what, essentially what you're saying is you're complicit with the powers that be in academia mm -hmm. who are grinding down those who are at the, the lower rungs of the ladder uh, and I think that would be hugely unfair to people like me who stay outside um, because clearly we don't have any sort of uh, institutional power I mean we can form sort of collectivities mm -hmm. 
where you know uh, we can work together and we can make sure that if we collaborate on things uh, these uh, junior people get more publications and they it increases their chances because I respect the choice of someone who wants to make a career in academia I've never ever said like oh uh, why don't you just leave playfully of course I do say to people sometimes do you have any advice for me yeah leave mm-hmm. because you'll get to write more if you leave yeah. you'll have you'll have the time and space to actually do your own work if you if you're outside because that's one other side of the coin which is that with the the heavy teaching loads that academics have now there is no time to, to write there is no time to research someone like you is anomalous because you've got a you've you've got a lot of teaching but you write an awful lot you know you're yeah you're pretty prolific yeah uh, but then again there someone like you is an interesting example who does you know you get paid for your teaching yeah. you know not not I have a great not ex- not extremely well no, but no, you get paid for your teaching yeah. but I, I can't but you do a lot of thankless work i mean translation is largely thankless you know yeah. uh, it's labor intensive it's also not it's often not paid it's often not paid uh, that was that was going to be I my point i should say just because uh, this is public you know i mean uh, i have been paid by univocal mm. and polity yes and i'll leave the silence hanging over the other publisher that often does exploit um young career yes. uh, individuals and, and grad students. And, you know, it also means that you can't um, devote as much time to the transition as you want uh, yes. because you don't have the space that money creates. Yes. Um, yeah. But, yeah. So, yeah, translation is thankless, I agree. Yeah. yeah. One of the other terms, which I, I, I mean, peri-academic, I like at the moment, but I'm, I'm, I'm always open to recitation and abandoning uh, in favor of something which more, may become more politically or theoretically useful later on. But uh, I was reading uh, Derrida's account on the 20th anniversary, very shortly before he died, maybe about four months before he died, of the International College of oh, Philosophy, yeah. which he set up, uh, which is very interesting because yeah. it is it is extra institutional because yeah. Derrida never wanted to be part of any clan or any... And they don't, they family, don't or... yeah, and they don't. This they're not a, a body which can, yeah. you know, uh, accredit anything or or award anything. But uh, he 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 described them as passers, passers by, but also creating passageways. Mm. And I think that's really beautiful because I, I would see myself as something of a passerby, mm-hmm. but I also create, you know, passages for, uh, or tunnels mm-hmm. where work can happen where people can escape from the academy to do the kinds of work that they you know they can't legitimately do in the academy um but also people like me who have passageways in because sometimes like you know i might have this fanciful idea that i want to to have an event but i need money to do it so of course i'm going to parasite on an institution which has money yeah you know they get the kudos i get to have my event but I can still walk away and not be part of the institution and all the, the shittiness that goes with being part of an institution yeah. now. Yeah. It's interesting that something like speculative realism, whatever whatever that name indexes at the yes. end of the day, because um, it indexes, it doesn't really index or, or name a singular thing. It almost named a moment for a lot of graduate students and and other other folks in, uh, working in theory. Yeah. Um, but, you know, speculative realism is very much a kind of product of this... Uh, 
extra institutional institutional relationship mm-hmm. um, and you, you've done a lot of work there what, what got you interested in in those figures and, and maybe mm-hmm. say who those figures are for you mm-hmm. I think um, it's precisely what you've just said that, that got me into speculative realism in the first place um, it could be a criticism of me I'm sure people have leveled this but I'm always sort of, sort of feeling around for sort of intellectual temperatures and if something hot comes on the scene, I kind of like to be reading it and mm-hmm. seeing, well, what can queer theory do with this? You know, So speculative realism, when it showed up on the landscape with the the first event in Goldsmiths in 2007, I think so. uh, with May Sue and Harman, um, Brassier and Hamilton Grant, uh, I had a friend, Dermot Hester, who was studying with Ray Brassier at Middlesex, and he was sending me on the ground from the battlefield reports of <laughs> this new movement yeah. speculative realism so I was immediately intrigued and he sent me the collapse issue I immersed myself in, in all of this um, the weirdness of it appealed to me initially um, which is probably why the, the object oriented ontology branch or wing or whatever one wants whatever to call it tendency yeah deviation uh, is yeah. the one which I've I guess I've done the most work on and with mm. um, is because it's, there's something about the un, the uncanniness in the way that they understand objects which seems to me just intuitively queer mm. um, so I wanted to make sort of, sort of connections or rapprochements between um, speculative realism and in, in all its manifestations I mean I'm, I'm not I, I don't hitch myself to any of the the, the various different wagons of yeah. speculative realism I'm, I'm interested in all of them so well I mean I, you bring me to Dublin so you yeah, yeah I mean the, <laughs> yeah well the Laruel yeah uh, the Laruel wing if it is a wing of speculative realism I mean some people would say that it is um, accelerationism done some work on that uh, then there's sort of the weird fiction stuff in the Karistani, Legati, um, then there's the eliminative, eliminative materialist side of it, uh, and I guess you've got the new materialisms, mm-hmm. which I, I I guess are the closest to queer studies because a lot of that new materialist work is coming directly out of yeah. feminism. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, when I write, eventually, finish writing this queering speculative realism book, um, it will have a chapter on as many or. Oh, really? all of the strands because um, I'm not really attached to particular figures I mean I've written most about Levi Bryant probably mm. of the of the people that are, are probably Levi Bryant and May Sue uh-huh. from the OO side and the speculative realist side uh, but I've written about Reza um, written bits about Harmon here and there um, written about Laruel of course yeah. um, so great Great article. Thank you. Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not uh, either attached to a figure or set of figures or to a particular school, for want of a better word, of speculative. I'm interested in all of it. Yeah. Well, what what are you what are you uh, hoping to do by by querying speculative realism? Because um, I'm guessing you don't think that 
I'm guessing that the point isn't that you know queers need speculative realists or speculative realists need queers. Like it doesn't. Yeah. You're probably not making a necessity argument there. No. Um, so what's the thrust of? I think one of the things that when I first said I was working on this book, um, someone said to me like, "Oh, speculative realism is queer." Like, duh, obviously. I think like, well, yeah. But nobody's actually written about this, or nobody's said this. So that on the one hand, you've got a certain a certain silence about, you know, the influence or potential influence of queer theory on this, because queer theory has been around since early nineties, and this is a, this is a movement of the late two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, so sh- simply in terms of precedence, there's obviously going to be, you know, uh, a percolation of queer ideas and queer thinkers into what happens in the later movement uh, but it's a bit like what I was saying earlier about one way traffic you know uh, I mean there has been work on um, sexuality and gender by some of the major figures associated with this um, but on the other hand the queer theorists don't seem to me to be engaging with the speculative stuff very much you know the argument actually would be from certain people like oh these triple O guys they're so masculinist and they're not interested in gender or not interested in sex well the onus is on you to to write an article mm. about that then but, but it's actually not true because I mean Morton's written about queer theory quite a bit like uh, even before his turn to triple O and, and also after Levi's written a lot on queer stuff Harmon's written bits and pieces on feminism he's written on Canberrad most recently, for example. Hampton Grant's the only one who hasn't really engaged. And then Mayasu is fascinating because in this collection with Iris van der Toon and um, Rick Dolphine, where they interview Mayasu, they interview Barad, Bredotti, Delanda and Mayasu. And Mayasu just evades all of the questions about gender. He just answers with these sort of misdirections. So they, said, they ask him a question about sexual difference and he talks about something completely different. Uh, a question about directly about gender. Uh, you know, he, he goes off on a totally different path. And I think that that's fascinating to me. Um, well, I'm guessing Ray Brazier probably hasn't talked about Brazier is interesting because Niall Unbound, I mean, it's like there's quite a bit on psychoanalysis in Niall Unbound, but you won't find an awful lot about sex or gender in Brassier um, so yeah he's he, he would be another where so Hamilton Grant Brassier and, and Mayasu are the ones who've who okay. haven't, haven't really engaged so I, I, I think the onus is, then is on the queer theorist or the feminist theorist or uh, the sexuality studies person to do the work I mean you can't you can't lament you know or moan about it without actually doing doing the work and say, well, well, what can Maya Sue say to if if Iris and Rick are able to ask him a whole bunch of questions about gender, it's because they see something in his work which is direct directly useful to a conversation about gender and sexual difference mm-hmm. and so on. Um so I, I, I will, as I was saying to you before, I will write this long article at some point about Mayasu and gender, which will, I've been saying this for years now, but I still haven't fully worked it out. But I think that for me, the concept of hyper chaos or super contingency could be really, really helpfully mapped onto um, 
Butler's work on the sort of contingency of gender. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to do something around that. But I'm. I think I said that you should uh, quote Beyonce if I was a boy. Mm. Uh, for that, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but I mean, also, it kind of has some relationship to the Cora, doesn't it? Or maybe I, I might be conflating too, too no. quickly there. But the Cora, that's really, that's really sharp because I, I did this interview with Stanimir Panayatov mm-hmm. uh, some years ago for Journal Identities, and uh, he he did his masters, I think, on the Cora. Mm. Um, so I because we're both interested in this figure. I said, like, the most important figure in Derrida for me is, is the Korah. You know, not De Ferrance, um, not Revenance, uh, not Hauntology, uh, not Autoimmunity, although they're all important to me, but um, the Korah. Um, and it's actually Caputo, John Caputo, mm. which, which uh, led to this sort of, I guess it was kind of a revelation for me. And it was like, he talks about the Quran's holy other. And I thought, that's really substitutable for queer. Um, so, so it's just a, it's a, it's a little moment in the prayers and tears of Jack Derrida, uh, where he talks about uh, the Quran's this kind of you know, place, this place, which is open to, to otherness. And I thought, like, yeah, there's something I can do with that. Um, so I've, I've worked with that concept quite a bit. Um, but I'd never thought of uh, making the connection to Meisu in that way. Well, I, I, I guess I'm thinking of hyperchaos as this kind of, uh, yeah, the openness of it as, as being related. In I think you could that. probably make the argument via yeah. the stuff that Caputo's been doing more recently, because mm-hmm. um, he's been critiquing the speculative realists. I mean, he's written on Brassier, yeah. and he's written on Meisu, and particularly in... Uh, the follow-up to the weakness of God, the uh-huh. insistence of God. Yeah. Um, but I think if you probably did a joint reading of those two volumes and, and, and really looked at what Pitto is doing with Catherine Keller's work mm-hmm. and the sort of process theology. And, I mean, I've written this article uh, with Mark Mason called Mayasu's Messianicity, which is attempting to bring Caputo and Mayasu closer together. Hmm. So we do talk a little bit about that, that idea. Um, it's taking the excerpts from the divine in existence. Um, well, and and what Keller does with chaos is uh, mm. connects it up with this, um, the kind of theological construction of femininity. Yes, and and the way that um, discourses of masculinity and femininity and in, in uh, Mesopotamian religions yes. were at play in, in the kind of construction of Christian. Creatio ex nihilo and uh, mm. yeah, so it's the it's the section on creatio ex nihilo in in the divine in existence, oh, right. which we linked up very briefly, uh, with, um, Caputo and Keller. Mm. So yeah, I mean, it's funny how sometimes you forget what you that you've actually made these <laughs> yeah. these connections. Yeah. Uh, Did I write that? Yeah. yeah, it's like we talked about the other day when when Paul Ellis was like putting up quotes from articles he'd written. You know, I really write that. What does that mean? Yeah, but I mean, I have this. I I described it before to to a friend as like uh, being confronted with the violence of your own work, mm-hmm. you know, or being violently pulled up short. I guess by I I said that. What did I mean by that? Yeah. Uh, why did I say that then? Do I still hold to that now? Uh, so it can be quite interesting. Uh, yeah. The own sort of your own sort of blind spots about your work. 
There's kind of a shame thing there too. It, there is a shame thing. Um, I was I was asked to respond at a conference that Eileen Joy's Babel Working Group organized uh, in in Boston. Was mm-hmm. it last year or the year before? But it was called Parts, Holes, and the New. And so I I I misconstrued it as being this sort of Luhmannian systems theory. Uh, what, what on earth would I have to say to this? So I wrote this response uh, before even hearing the papers. Uh, but then I, when I heard the papers, I, I was able to respond a bit more on the fly, as it were, yeah. and realised that it wasn't Luhmannian systems theory. But uh, <laughs> I wrote this thing about like the shame of being confronted by a discipline which is not our own mm. and the risk that is involved in that, which we can see as, as I said, a sort of positive way of looking at our, uh, at our shame, uh, which is like, uh, how do we confront um, theoretical languages that aren't our own or disciplines that aren't our own? Uh, we feel ashamed that we don't know something. And yet, aren't there ways in which we can connect to people outside of our own discipline or outside of our own theoretical uh, mm. discourses? Um, Precisely because of that shame, shame flooded moment. Uh, I, 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 I always uh, make this connection to cruising, mm-hmm. uh, which is this le- idea in Leo Bersani that cruising um, is this kind of, um, it's kind of a, a, a metric or rhythm uh, which leads to new relational modes between people, uh, which are based on not necessarily knowing yeah. them. So it's easily mapped onto knowledge, uh, or knowledge production. Yeah. You know, you can talk about cruising in in a sense, which is not necessarily about the erotics of cruising, but more about cruising other people's disciplines. Yeah. In a way, but Derrida actually has this figure in the eyes of the university called the professor at large. He says, like, the professor at large does not necessarily belong. I f- I see myself in this. Mm-hmm. He doesn't belong to any institution necessarily, but he loftily from afar he comes in from the sea. And he looks mm. upon other disciplines, uh, which seems to me because it's the the uh, the eyes of the university, mm-hmm. you know. So the the university is in the eyes of its pupils. So it's a, it's a kind of a pun, but it's also about cruising in yeah. a certain sense. Um, but cruising is often seen as shameful or you know a same a shame constituting mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, so why not take that up as a way of talking about our relationships to other other disciplines or other fields so in our, in our last couple of minutes here um, I want to ask you about how you, you got into this stuff so why did you decide to spend your life working on queer theory and working on theory in general and um, you know what and you can you can tell us you know even about just going to university or whatever but yeah. what what made you care about this stuff it's funny um, my, my mother is a a French and English teacher. Um, the secondary school? Secondary school, yeah. Um, but she went to University College Dublin, which is where I ended up going. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't interested as... Uh, we we had books everywhere. You talk about the piles of books here in yeah. my apartment. Um, my mother's house uh, was full of books. So we were surrounded by them. We were surrounded by learning. We were surrounded by knowledge. And we were encouraged in all sorts of ways to be interested but I wasn't what I was interested in was horse racing so I was 
And this is this is interesting because I was a student of form. Now I, I don't gamble anymore, but what I do every day, I spend several hours a day reading, reading form. Mm. So I study horse racing in a way which I would apply exactly the same protocols to reading texts. Okay, so I spent every day as a teenager in a betting office, hmm. not gambling, because I wasn't old enough, and it would have been illegal, um, but reading form, watching horse racing, and uh, I guess later on that le- led to um, sort of reading or critical modes that I, that I operate with now, although I wouldn't have recognized it then, but I wasn't interested in anything. I mean, I excelled in English in school. It was the only subject I was good at. I was good at math, actually. Hmm. But I was best at English. So my mother said, like, you know, you love horse racing. Why don't you become a horse racing journalist? So that is why I went to university to study English, because I wanted to write about horse racing. Um, so arrived at UCD, did English, economics, and sociology. Shocking trio. I mean, yeah. people would probably not realize I ever studied economics. Yeah. I was terrible at it. Um, <laughs> I almost failed, actually. It's the only thing I've ever almost flunked out in. And they just compensated me, I think, because I did so well in the other two subjects. Mm. But I hated, I hated university and I was going home at the weekends. Like I was living in Dublin, but going home at the weekends. And uh, I was, had a very visceral reaction to studying. So I was vomiting all the time. Mm. Um, so it was very, it's very difficult period for me starting college because it it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I didn't want to be reading books, mm. and this I have the same relationship to fiction still. I don't read fiction. I've had to teach it for over a decade in the in the nineties, but I don't read it. I don't derive much from reading reading fiction, which confuses people because I taught English for so long. Um, so my mother was thinking like, what can I possibly do? to get Michael, you know, to survive this. So she asked a psychoanalyst friend of hers who was studying women's studies at UCD, which I ended up teaching in many years later, um, to give me some articles. So she gave me a bunch of articles, Freud, Lacan, um, Juliette Mitchell, um, Griselda Pollock, uh, sort of like a lot of second wave feminist stuff and I just fell in love with it immediately Lacan particularly um, so 1993 my mother gave me Lacan's decree as a Christmas gift because suddenly after three months in college I just fell in love with Lacan tried to write like him with obviously disastrous results <laughs> but uh, so that's how I fell in love with theory so it was psychoanalysis first mm. and feminist theory and then maybe about a couple of years later because uh, intellectual movements don't travel to Ireland very quickly. Okay. This is like, this is a sort of time delay or time lag. So queer theory only really hit here about 95. So is one of my professors, Anne Fogarty, was teaching Sedgwick on the Gothic. So we, we, we did some, uh, some work around queer theory and that was it. So it's 20 years working on, on queer theory. And um, I was saying when, when I brought my mum to, to Sweden with me to give this lecture in the sort of preamble, I was like, I didn't really know what to talk about today. So uh, I ended up writing something which I call Infinitely Queer, which is, it, it's, a, it's a play on all sorts of different senses of 
infinitely and mm-hmm. queer. Uh, but the main thing was, well, why am I still in love with this? Why am I still in love with doing this after um, 20 years? Why does it still matter to me so much? Uh, and it's just, uh, Judith Butler said about Zizek once, he lives and breeds theory. I live and breathe theory. I think about nothing else from when I get up in the morning. Mm. I just, I'm, I'm just constantly thinking, which is why it's great to work in the post office because I don't have to think about what I'm doing there. Sort. I can just sort mail, but I'm thinking about Derrida or I'm thinking about Laruel or whatever. I'm writing, I'm writing my articles in my head all the time. Mm. So yeah, uh, who knows in 20 years if you, if you come and visit me again, will I still be as excited? Um, uh, enervated by all of this I imagine I will be so that's this week's episode of my name is my name with APS I hope you found the conversation with Michael interesting as usual what I like about it is how provocative he can be while still making a radical demand for openness uh, including in his own thinking So in the next couple of days, I should be putting up another lecture podcast. Uh, This will be from the American Academy of Religion, where there was a special session around the theme of violence in theology, which included some really interesting younger scholars, uh, mostly grad students, um, a few very young faculty, um, tackling some of these questions in the realm of Christian theology. As always, I'm open to suggestions, or if you're someone listening to this podcast and you think uh, you should be given a platform, get in touch with me, and I'm always willing to consider that. Uh, That goes for your lectures, as well as sitting down and having a conversation. In the next couple of weeks, we have a couple more podcasts uh, with Alex Dublay talking about Laurel, talking about Meister Eckhart, uh, also with Christine Skolnick of DePaul University, um, talking about uh, ecological issues related also to our neuroplasticity. Anyway, I hope you find these podcasts useful, hope you find them interesting in a sea of stupid violence and violent stupidity. And I hope they help you remember that in the midst of that, your name is your name.